Thank you, Fred. Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would help me to speak, and that you would give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us, at some time in our lives, will feel that we are staring into the darkness. It may be the darkness of a threatening illness. It may be the darkness of unrealized dreams. It may be of crumbling relationships or financial difficulties. It might be the darkness of mental illness or the fear of loneliness. One or two very brave people got up in church and shared their experiences of darkness in their lives with the church family last Sunday, which was deeply moving and incredibly helpful to all of us. And one of the outcomes for that of that, for those who weren't here last week, is that the church is committed to praying every day for 40 days for healing from dementia for Tim Ball, Jan's husband. So church, please be praying. There's a reminder in your service sheet. One of my darker moments, which will probably seem almost trivial compared to what I've just been talking about, was in the first 12 months of coming to faith. And uh, I was on such a high. I'd thrown myself uh, wholeheartedly into the adventure of faith and was growing almost weekly uh, in my praying and in my knowledge of Jesus and the experience of being loved by God. And it was wonderful. Things were good. It was so good that I decided that I was going to get baptized in a full immersion baptism at Greyfriars Church where I'd started attending. But there was a problem. Kirsty was not on board. In the 20 years that we'd been married, we had only ever gone to church for weddings, funerals, or christenings, and she was still not a believer. But very early on, my friend Chris, who'd invited me to the church where I had first encountered God, had told me, stand firm in your faith, and you will lead your family to Christ. That's what he said. And I really believed that that was a word from God through Chris. But it hadn't happened. And Kirsty's friends, who had so confidently predicted that this was just a passing phase that pads would soon get over, were beginning to look concerned. And then one evening, I told Kirsty that I had committed my life to Jesus and that I intended to get baptized. And to her, that was the last straw. She told me with some justification that as far as she was concerned, the only person I'd ever committed my life to was her when we got married. And that if I was going to commit my life to someone else, then she'd be better off without me and finding someone more like her. That was a pretty dark moment. And it rocked me a bit. I mean... Were the, friends of, were the words of my friend Chris that he'd given me a year before, were they still true? If I stuck to my faith, would I somehow lead Kirsty to Jesus? It looked vanishingly unlikely at that time. And you know, I think it's a bit similar to the way Abraham must have been feeling 
at the start of this chapter that we've just heard from, that Fred's just read. So let's look at, start at verse 1 of chapter 15. And as always, I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to say, it's going to be really helpful if you pick up one of these because we will go beyond the readings printed on the service sheet. So it's page 15 and it's Genesis chapter 15 and we're going to begin at verse 1. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, before we go on, that phrase, the word of the Lord came, appears over a hundred times in the Old Testament. But this is the very first occurrence. The word of the Lord came to Abram. He is the first in a long line of people chosen by God to receive the word of the Lord. And God speaks and he says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And that phrase, do not be afraid, appears 365 times in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the most frequent command of God in the whole of the Bible. And you've guessed it. It first comes to Abraham in this verse. Do not be afraid. Why is Abraham afraid? Well, there could be a number of reasons. As you'll remember from the last couple of weeks, Abraham has traveled from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran. He did well for himself, and he could have just stayed there, but Abraham knew that God's plan for his destiny lay in Canaan. And so, do you remember this? Don't settle for Haran. Remember, Haran's where we're comfortable, but it's not necessarily where God wants us. Don't settle for Haran. And he set out for Canaan. And when he got there, there was a famine. And we heard from David last week that he went down to Egypt where there was food. But as David explained, he got into terrible trouble because he told Pharaoh that Sarai, his wife, was in fact his sister instead of his wife in an attempt to save his own skin. And Pharaoh takes her into his household, but later discovers the deception. And Abraham is lucky to get away with his life. And Pharaoh boots him out of Egypt and he returns to Canaan, to Hebron in Canaan. That was chapter 12. And you'll notice we've jumped from chapter 12 to chapter 15. So we've jumped over chapters 13 and 14 where Abraham and his nephew Lot, who've been traveling together all this way, decide to go separate ways. But Lot gets kidnapped and Abraham ends up having to go to war against four kingdoms in neighboring regions to rescue his nephew, which he does. But this is Abraham's first real experience of warfare and he might well be wondering if those kings will come back to seek revenge. He may well be afraid. He may well be nervous about that. Secondly, God has promised him offspring, but he's getting on and his wife is pretty much past childbearing age and there's no sign of children. And thirdly, God had told Abraham before that he would give him the land of Canaan. But right now, the land was occupied and it was in the hands of ten pagan kings. And it might be one thing for God to say that he owns the land, but exactly how on earth was he going to possess it? So there are three good reasons why Abraham might be feeling fearful of what the future holds. In many ways, 
he was staring into the darkness. But God knows this. He knows exactly what we are feeling. And he knew exactly what Abraham was feeling. And at all three points, he gives him reassurance in our passage. God addresses his fear head on, reminding him of who God is. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. God's I am is all we need in the face of our inadequacy. In the face of our I am not, God says, I am. Years later, of course, when Moses, many years later, when Moses is facing God in the burning bush and feeling inadequate for the calling on his life, and he asks God, who can I tell the Israelites has sent me? In other words, God, what's your name? God answers, I am who I am. When we are fearful and staring into the darkness, we have to know that the great I am is with us and that that's enough. That was enough for Moses. It was enough for Abraham and it should be enough for us. So Abraham doesn't need to be afraid of those other kings attacking him in revenge because God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham goes on to take this opportunity to raise his very understandable concerns over his promised offspring. Verse 2, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham says, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He's saying, I've got no children, so I'm going to have to pass everything on to my head servant. But God says no. Verse 4, he says, this man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he takes him outside and he says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And in what I think is an extraordinarily short and simple comment in verse 6, we're told that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Let's just pause for a moment and think about that. Abraham is old. His wife is probably well past childbearing years. And not only God is saying that he will have offspring by his own flesh, but that they will be too many to count. And yet, Abraham believed the Lord. I think this verse is epic. In fact, this verse is so crucial that the New Testament writers often refer back to it in their own writings. In Galatians 3, chapter 6, in Romans 4, chapter 3, in James 2, verse 23, all refer to this verse. I think we're nearly all familiar, aren't we, with what's perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, this verse about Abraham, chapter 15, verse 6, is often referred to as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Why? 
because it's a defining statement about God's grace. It says that we're saved by faith. Abraham believed the Lord and that made him right with God. Salvation is not something we can earn. It's the gracious gift of God and it's received by faith. This is the amazingly good news of God's grace. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, if we, like Abraham, believe the Lord, we too are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. It's ridiculous. If you think about it, it's mad. And in the words of the church planter Francis Chan, it's crazy. It's crazy love. God's crazy love. We don't deserve it. Abraham didn't deserve it. But God's crazy love says, if we will put our lives in his hands and believe, he will take away all our guilt, all our shame, and he washes us clean. Do you know, in this room on Friday morning, we had 90 year two children from Southgate Primary, and they were learning about baptism and belonging. And we did this exercise where we got each child to wash the hands of another child. And it was as a sign of having guilt taken away and being washed clean by the love of God. And when I asked the children after they'd done the exercise, how did they feel? One of them said, it made me feel calm. Another said, it made me feel peaceful. Another said, it made me feel clean. And that's a perfect metaphor for having our shame and our guilt taken away by the love of God. And it's all by his grace. So God addresses Abraham's fear of possible attack by saying, don't be afraid, I'm your shield. He addresses Abraham's fear of childlessness, more than you can count. And Abraham believes God. But there's still one more issue. In verse 7, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. And he reminds him of the promise of the land. And once again, Abraham seeks a reassuring sign. And he, in verse 8, he says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? And God's answer in what follows in verses 9 through 17 describes what was known as cutting a covenant, a solemn ritual involving the death of some animals and the binding of people to a promise. I won't go into all the gory detail, but only to say that in Abraham's case, it was different. It wasn't the way cutting a covenant was normally done between people. In Abraham's case, it was God who made the promises to Abraham, not Abraham making the promises to God. And the promise is summed up, jumping forward to verse 18, when God says, to your descendants, I will give this land. God is settling the matter in a solemn promise to Abraham. In fact, many Bible translations, not this one, but many others, reflect that it's a done deal by, by translating it, to your descendants, I have given this land. In other words, it's done. It's decided. It's yours. You can trust me. And as Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on Genesis says about this chapter, God's covenant stands no matter what the people believe. 
The covenant is unconditional. The fulfillment does not depend on man's faith or faithfulness. And in the same way, the new covenant established by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and rose again is dependable whether people believe it or not. Those who put their faith in Jesus enter into the new covenant and receive eternal salvation and eternal inheritance and eternal glory. When we are staring into the darkness, when we fear that things are not turning out the way they should, what should we do? Well, let me go back to the story I started with, my own experience of Kirsty rejecting my newfound faith 20 years ago. There were only two options for me. Give up on God or believe what I'd been told. And although it was a very difficult time, and although I, could, I, I couldn't see how it was possibly going to work out, I knew above all that God was real. I knew he was with me. And so I had to believe. There was no other choice. I had to believe. And about six months after that, and after much prayer and prayer support from others, and by a completely unexpected route, which had nothing to do with the Alpha Course or with Greyfriars Church or, or anything that I might have imagined, God broke into Kirsty's life marvelously, unmistakably, and totally. And the rest is history. God came through on that promise because his promises are good. That doesn't mean, of course, that every story will have a happy ending. It doesn't mean that. That's not what it means. And we'll all face suffering in this life. And we will fear from time to time, just as Abraham did. But it does mean that we have a God who loves us, who promises to be with us, even when we're staring into the darkness, who he himself in Jesus Christ has stared into the very pit of hell as he hung on the cross, but who rose again to eternal life. And by that triumph shows us that there is resurrection after crucifixion. There's hope after despair. There's light after darkness. There's life after death. There's joy after fear. There's gladness after mourning. There's beauty after ashes. That's the good news of the gospel. If you are currently staring into the darkness of a difficult situation and you need it transformed by the great I am... I want to suggest this morning that you bring it up with you when you come for communion. And as you receive the bread and the wine today, remember that God God took the death of his son on the cross. His body and his blood represented in that bread and wine and transformed Jesus' gruesome death into the most beautiful victory in history. And as you eat the bread and wine, ask the great I am to transform your situation or your fear or your darkness into a God-glorifying victory. And when you've done that, if you would like to seal it with a prayer, do go over to the prayer ministry team who will be over in that corner and just ask them to pray with you in confidence and say a resounding amen to the prayer for transforming 
that situation, that thing, that fear that you've brought up. Living faith, living by faith, is staring into the darkness and speaking out the words of John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.